So tonight I want to speak about a sacred, sacred intention, sacred intention. I had someone ask me, uh, she said, she said, I thought she, she was coming to a Buddhist retreat and I haven't mentioned the Buddha the whole time. <clears throat> and I said, um, you know, when, when you're a cucumber, you have to, you have to be beside of pickle to know the taste of a pickle. But when you've been pickled in Buddhism, you don't have to keep turning around to know the taste of a pickle. <laughs> and uh, I feel uh, that I've spent so many, so many years sort of ingesting the teaching that I can't say anything other than Buddhism. It's too much in me. It's been too integrated into the whole perception. So I like to westernize it. Let's use our metaphors. Let's use our time, contemporary. If this task can't move with us, then there's something wrong with the teaching. If we have to use arcane speech or ideas in, we, in which we have to look up the what it means, what are we doing? In fact, I feel very strongly uh, compelled as I get older, and, and the book I'm writing is, what is the system, what is the most sim- simple way of stating this thing? What is the absolute simplest way, profound in its simplicity? And also, it has to be equally malleable, flexible, so that it moves wherever we move and is equally applicable to whatever we do, wherever we might be. And I think that we are coming to an understanding of a system that does just that. But there's a key point. Do you want what Buddhism is offering? You will not join the system if you don't. The deepest and most profound question we can ask that requires such standards of honesty that few of us have ever matched in our entire life is the question, what do we want from this? Because therein will arise our true intentionality. And one of the reasons I like teaching and speaking to people who have had a few retreats under their belt is that your intention has quite likely deepened as your realization and profundity of what sitting really means has deepened along with it. Because none of us that I know of start out with absolute ideas of where we want to go. We, we make them very relatively, we make the teaching very relative to the problems we have. And usually that can be stated in mundane and profane problems. 
but like a sinker, like the sinker of a fishing rod, like the sinker. Once the rod, the line is cast into the ocean, the sinker just keeps pulling the line down. And we are talking now, and it's the only thing I want to talk about is the deepest place that that sinker will go. And let's bring Buddhism along with us because that's where it goes. My teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, before I left the monastery in Thailand, said to me, don't be afraid to shake the people you share the Dharma with. If you don't, you're not teaching Buddhism. And I took that to heart. And it all revolves, the whole, the, the, the willingness to let that thing sink down all around, revolves around our intentionality. But let's back up for just a moment and look what we are and have learned and let's put it together in terms of a system so that we understand that these aren't piecemeal talks, that they're not talks about a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Now we're talking about the wandering mind. Now we're talking about the arrogant mind. At the end of retreat, you have a half dozen talks which don't fit together or mean something but don't really, like, what, huh? And I had many retreats like that. We're beginning to see that the way we normally have lived our lives has been very differentiated because they have been focused on fear and desire. And the more we differentiate, the more we embrace fear and desire as the medium through which we gain and access the world of our wants and needs, the more separate and isolated we feel within that world, the more painful is our state of being. So, we turn it around. We start coming back into ourselves. We start coming back into connection, reconnecting, not further differentiation, but moving it in the opposite way. And we begin to see, no matter how we understand the word connection, as we intend our way towards greater connection, even if it's the most superficial forms of it, we find ourselves getting happier. We find ourselves more joyful. We find ourselves in less, less conflict, less struggling, less contracted. The problem is that we usually arrest that connection because at some point it gets a little scary. At some point, non-differentiation begins to blur our identity, which we have always held as sacrosanct. That's why we stop, many of us stop at therapy. It's a mode, it's a form of reconnecting with ourselves, but stops when it interferes with identity. 
And Buddhism doesn't stop there. Because real interconnection moves much further than that. Much further. And so fear is usually, fear, again, the medium of differentiation becomes the reason why we don't further undifferentiate. So we have to use the cues of fear and desires not to play out the themes of fear and desires but to connect with the fear and desire rather than to play them out in further differentiation. Thereby, when a fear or desire comes in me, I watch what it does as it attempts to create further differentiation, further escape, further a sense of contraction, how it has me turn away from the problem at hand. And through courage, and there's no other word, I'm unwilling to do that. I'm unwilling to play this out because I understand that if this is to end in absolute freedom, I cannot play out the themes of differentiation. I have to line up in accordance with the strategies and systems of undifferentiation, of reconnecting, of reconnection, of interconnection. And so I don't let myself be fooled by the mind states that seem to ask me to differentiate. I just don't, I'm not going to buy into it anymore. I'm going to look deeply into them. What am I going to do when I look deeply into them? I'm going to connect with them. I go into them. Until they become the nothing that everything is. And I have to also follow, because wherever there is the pain of struggle and conflict, I'm on top of it, because therein lies the differentiating process of fear and desire. So as a bodily sense, I'm very sensitive to, acutely aware of, any way that the body or the mind begins to contract. And the body is an excellent antenna for that sense of contraction. So I'm just, I'm on top of it. Oh, stomach, chest. Oh, what's going on here? There's some fear going on. All right, let's look at that. Now, up until this point, fear and desires have been the law of the land. Have been the law of the dimension on which I've been running aimlessly. And for us to look at the law itself rather than to obey the law is the key turnaround here. When we are afraid up until it's a knee-jerk response, I'm getting out of here. Of course, that's what it means. Get out of here. Desire means approach, grab, grasp. It's the law. I don't have to look at that. That's just what it, what the body does. That's right. That's human nature, right? Human nature. 
But to look at the law, to question the law itself, well, that. See, to question, to look at, already we're using the very words of connection. To look at that which disconnects. We won't allow anything to disconnect us. All we will do continually from the start to the end. The means, everything we employ, the strategies, everything will be in accordance with connection. And therefore it all lines up like a very fuzzy film. All of a sudden it's But if you have one finger out of line and the mind is extraordinarily deceptive in how it tries to employ differentiation towards reconnecting. Extraordinarily subtle. There's just one thing more subtle than that. That which sees it. See? Because that which sees it is already connected to it. To use the thing that's closest at hand and not have to go miles on pilgrimages and to twist our body in contorted postures or stare at candle flames, or sing to gods who we've never even heard of. That which is closest at hand, that which we are, that which is the nature of things, the true nature of things. You see how simple it is? It's so extraordinarily beautiful when it's perceived. It's so exquisite in its absolute simplicity, that suddenly the revelation comes, this has to be true. It has to be. Long before the realization that it is true, there is this absolute perfection of what is seen and how it's, oh God, it has to be true. And then of course the realization proves the point. So we move with the deepest intention. What is our deepest intention? What is the sacred intention? Where, where if, if it is natural, if it's a natural process, if this is authentic, if it is absolutely a given, then there must be within this system already the intention to come back to home. There must be some pull. There must be some something, some force. The force of gravity itself that I can hook up to and just move down with. And lo and behold, we find it in our yearning. I remember in one of the opening days of my spiritual practice, I mean, I was... I was an extremist and just doing methods just for methods, just because it felt 
like I was doing something. and I was putting on Chance to God or something. I don't know what it was, some record album. And in those days, it was a record album, literally. And it had some, some beautiful uh, Hindu chant that was... And I just, I'd never heard such a pull of the heart. And I just doubled over. I could not move. It was, I became immobile with that longing. And I had no idea. I'd never felt it before. Nothing like that. I could not move. And I'm not unique. And if we can arouse that deepest longing, if we can just access it once more, the longing is not towards a search away from. It is not towards a pilgrimage toward. It is a pull back into ourselves, a reconnecting with ourselves. That's the urge. It's gravity not a longing for. We pull, we go with the gravity of the heart. But the problem is that there are two sets of intention. There's the intention of that the deepest intention, the heart's deepest yearning, and then there is the mind's intention. And the mind works on a completely different, differentiated playing field. It works through the medium of differentiation, of me and you and this and that. That's how it sees and perceives, and it is the only way it can see, perceive, and see. And so... When it interprets or feels the yearning of the heart, it plays it out in the strategies of further differentiation. It chases after things. It seeks them. It longs for them. It yearns for them. It runs after them. And many of us hook up our spiritual intention with the longings of the mind. And then we play out the desires of the mind in a more subtle way. And so we chase after our spiritual hearts rather than reconnect with them. And so if we get lost in that playing field, in that dimension in which words are the governing force of the mind, if we get lost in the world of words, we are forever lost. And our spiritual practice becomes all fractured and discordant and painful, ultimately, because any search within that field of mental verbiage has to ultimately lead to further suffering. And so many of us mix strategies. We feel the need to reconnect but play out that feeling of reconnection through the mental display of things. And we assume ourselves to be like a billiard ball on a pool table with 
six billion other billiard balls and running around trying to knock ourselves into merging with those billiard balls. Somehow, from the thingness of the world, through the mind, it just feels like somehow if we could get them all together and kind of squish them. But billiard balls are billiard balls and you can't squish them. And there's no way to group them into a single overriding ball any way at all through the mind's door. You can't do it. It's impossible. No one has mentally ever arrived at freedom. You can't do it through the intellect. You can't do it. Because it is the complete opposite in every way. It interprets things completely opposite to their spiritual intention. And But some of us mix. We have wise view that things should be connected, but then we have unwise intention. The way we play out that is through the strategies of the mind. A good example of wise view and unwise intention was back when I was growing up, uh, the um, peace movement back then, the hippies, the peace movement, uh, that it was, you know, peace and love and flowers and all that connecting. But then the strategies were, let's blow up that armory. <laughs> <laughs> So that there's some, there's mixed, there's a mix, and people say, yeah, let's blow up the armory. <laughs> like, and let's, peace and love, yeah, blow up the armory. <laughs> you see, that's, that, but then we play out spiritually that same thing. We do that spiritually. So let us not laugh too deeply at that particular, they were just playing out what we do spiritually. We play out the strategies of differentiation to come to the undifferentiated. Never will happen. Not in a million years. Never. Because it's not lined up. It's like this. And we don't know what we're doing. Most of us don't know what we're doing. We're just, okay, let's do some of this. and Let's do some of that. And peace, peace. You see, it's got to be simple. It's just got to be all, it's got to be absolutely clear, absolutely in line. And then it works like a, an arrow shot from a bow. And some of us here, some of us here have really started to line up. And it's so gratifying to see students who have been confused just come like that. Go, ah. This makes sense now. I know what I'm doing. But without that intentionality, without that sacred intentionality, we are using mixed metaphors because we don't know what we want. We want a little of that and we want a little of this. And we want this, but we really don't want that. You see, and that's what keeps the whole thing so profoundly confusing, is we really don't know what we want, and we won't be honest with that. We want to, we're so moved by our spiritual hearts that we want, want to convince ourselves that we're 100% spiritual, but 
I think I'll take some tea now instead of do my walking meditation. We won't admit to the indulgence. We won't admit to the part of us that is just tired of doing this nonsense and wants another, wants a way out. If we did admit to it, if we said, wait a minute, what is this part of me that wants to indulge? Let me look at this. Now we're connecting with indulgence. And no longer will it be a system for further disconnection. We'll admit honestly. Honesty is connecting. So when we honestly admit, okay, I'm indulgent. I want to indulge. Or I'm, I have an image that I want to protect and I'm not willing to give the darn thing up. I'm not willing to undifferentiate that. I'm, I don't give a damn. I love this image. Fine. Love your image. I don't, I'm not trying to take anything away from you anyway. Some people feel like I, they come in all protected because I'm going to reach and, t- I'm not doing any of that. I don't want anything from you that, no, that you're not willing to give. But, I will say, okay, so you want that? Let's look at it. Let's see what you get. Because if this secondary intention of the mind, promise, is unfulfilled, well, then we have to own the fact that it's not being fulfilled. But the problem, and this is last night's talk about radical accountability and boundary elimination, as long as we blame the reason for the unfulfillment on circumstances or that I'm not good enough or you know, situations or my karma or uh, the barking dog next door or anything outside of taking full accountability because the system, the system will break down. That's the problem with secondary intentions is that the promise is never fulfilled. But as long as we can rationalize why they're not being fulfilled, we'll continue to pursue that intention, believing that we can then rearrange circumstances so the next time it will be fulfilled. So we have to check that out. We have to see. Is this promise, this secondary intention of acquisition, acquiring or avoiding, does it lead to the fulfillment of the promise? What promise? What's the promise of the desire? What is it that we're trying to achieve through the desire? What we're trying to achieve through the desire quite likely is contentment or some form or variable of that word. But let's just say contentment. I want my desires are, I'm not feeling content because of the desire. I then try to reach out, grab something, bring it into my sphere of influence, ingest it perhaps and thereby have a moment of contentment. So let's see if that works. Let's just try and play it out. How about our image that we so need and we feel so many people investing in how we might hold ourselves and we don't want to give that up. Okay, don't give it up. Look, what is it? how is it serving us? How is it serving us? What's well, giving me some status? In what way? Well, people project onto me. They're projecting. What does the mind feel in projection? What does it actually gain from another person's thought about you? What is the actual gift in that moment? Nothing. Zero. I get nothing from you, however you think of me. 
Think of me wisely, I get zero. Think of me as a dump, dump heap, I get zero. I get nothing from your mind. That's it. Why should I look for my salvation, for my sense of worth, from what you think of me? I get nothing from that. Sobering, isn't it? But I think I do. What I do is I get my own sense of worth derived from you thinking of me as being worthy. The problem is that I don't think of myself as being worthy, so I have to derive it from an external source. Why not go to the problem and see if it's true? See if the sense of me being inadequate, and thereby if I alleviate that problem, I don't need anything from you because you're not serving me at all in whatever you think about me. So I go to the difficulty. Rather than operating from the difficulty, I go to the difficulty. Again, I rejoin it. You see how simple it is? And so the secondary intentions... I'm completely convinced that if any of us seriously asked the most honest questions from these secondary intentions, those intentions of the minds wanting and fearing, they won't hold up. The promise will be unfulfilled. And then you will drop because the only thing that's keeping us from the primary intention of that longing is a secondary attempt to make our life work on that level. So as soon as that platform evaporates, the rock, the sinker falls even further down. But we're so afraid that that secondary intention may be true or we're so used to trying to play it out to make it true that we aren't honest. We aren't honest with it. We won't admit. See, we're inside. We think we're the problem. Most of us believe that our life hasn't worked on the level that we've been playing it because we're not really up to the task of living. That's what we really believe, most of us. And so in order to protect myself from that particular truth, I play the game of life trying to make it work. But it's inherent in the game that it won't work. It's like you start a board game in which you're going to lose every single time. And sometimes you get one space from winning it, and then you lose. And you think, God, boy, I, I got really close that time. Next time, <laughs> and we look for the chutes and ladders, you know, the little ways to cut off a big bulge of the path. <laughs> It isn't working. It won't work. It never will. If it works, it works temporarily and falls apart right before our eyes. The goal 
of absolute contentment will never be reached. Momentary, fleeting contentment is like getting out of jail, a card, or collecting $200, but it's not one in the game. And the next space you land on will take that $200 from you, or you'll land on somebody's hotel in Monopoly, and then, damn! <laughs> it's set up so you will not win. It is set up so you will never win it. Sobering, isn't it? But there's something else. If I can raise you, the courage from you, the intentionality, the courage. First, you have to know that you can do this thing. Secondly, you can do it anywhere. And you can embody that truth. You can embody that fact. I don't care what and how hurt your inward child is. I don't care how abused and bandaged and wrapped and grief. and I don't care. If you want to do it, you can do it. But first you have to be convinced you can. And that the intentionality will come when the pain of your life forces you to reown yourself in a way that the pain, running from the pain, never has. And then you'll have this strength that will come from Because you'll know. And you'll rise up. The beauties, the beauty of this path is so simple. Because what are we asking from you is nothing. We're not asking anything from you. We're not asking muscle. We're not asking, we're asking release. Relax. We're asking the opposite of everything that you went to school and did. Who in this room cannot relax? Who in this room cannot release the tension of their minds? Please stand up, because please, you, you must leave the retreat. <laughs> You're the one person in six billion that I've met who can't do it. Because none of us are that person. All of us have that potential. And because perhaps this is the one thing I can give you, is the certainty of whatever your pain says you are in your most disadvantaged, cornered, quaking, caved self, I can promise you that that is not anything but a self-generated definition.
an assumed truth. It is not the truth of you. I, I don't care what comes out. I was this and my father and other. And, okay, that's great. If you want to live with that packaging, be my guest. If you would like to give that up, we can find some other resource in you in which you can spring alive. But as long as you hold that smothering cloth around your nose and mouth, you'll never be able to breathe. See, I know that. And so when, whenever if someone sits in front of me and tells me their worst fear, absolutely nothing to me. Matter of fact, I'm encouraged that they are so honest. Now we can rise together. If you'd like, let's go together. Come on, let's do it. Come on, right now, let's go. Let's do it. Come on out. Let's go. Come on. Time's a-wasting. We can do this, people. And it's not lifetimes. See, we give away our intention to lifetimes. We give away our intention to time. We time ourselves out. We really do in this tradition. Why? Because I don't know why, to be honest. It's in the books. After the Buddha died, everybody said, Oh, God, I can't... I don't know. They all went into some... I don't know what happened. But the Buddha, I guarantee you, he, pickled as he was... He stood up and his very presence assured everybody that they could come along. And then he died and everybody goes, oh, I can't, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but it's Buddhism is what happened. 10,000 things, (laughs) 10,000 things you can do instead. That's what happened. Ways to delay. His presence wasn't delay. I guarantee you, that guy was alive. And we caught fire. He'd give a speech and 12,000 monks would wake up. Not because of what he said, but because of him. Everybody said, whoa! And gave away their secondary intentions. They couldn't, it was a flame that you couldn't have, that consumed. And then we try to find him in the words. You're not going to find him in the words. Well, he said this, and he said this, and this, and this. And now I have to do this, and this, and this. Whatever he said came momentary. It was an expression, immediate expression of aliveness to that person in that moment, at that time. It means nothing 2,500 years later. Sobering, isn't it? Feel your heart burn. I hope it's burning.
And so we give away our second, our primary intention. We give away the sacred. We say, oh, I'm not ready yet. I, I can't do it, you see. I can't, I can't. I'd like to, but I can't do it because we don't believe in ourselves. We believe in our misery. We believe in the product of ourself, not ourself. Ourself is not a product. It's a living thing. But we believe in the product of ourself. We re- believe in our history. We don't believe in the living thing. The living thing is not bound. It's not caged. It's not packaged. It's not quantifiable. And because of that, it can leap forward like a charging lion. Or I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced in the Dharma. I don't know. Maybe it's true and maybe it's not. I, I just don't know if it's right. I don't know. Some, some things fit. <laughs> partial hearts. Partial hearts. Partial hearts. But is there something in you that's not partial? Do you feel it? The beauty of intention, meeting in groups, there's a, I keep, keep getting different levels of Sangha, it's different ways that Sangha work. And one of the ways it works that I'm just discovering is the synergy of intentionality. And that's, there's an energetic way that others' intentions allow us to actualize our true potential. You can feel it. Sometimes this room is so vibrant. There's so much going on here. Because we've got many of you with deep intentions. That it quakes. That's why I love getting together like this. There's no stopping it. It's like a light switch. Let's rise up here. We start with honesty. And we start by lining everything up in its simplistic, its most simplistic form. If I was making you into some gymnast where you had to do you know, backflips and twists and, you know, oh, God, long time before I'm that good. But release, relax, allow, observe. 
Well, he's not asking much, is he? And perhaps most important, honesty. Where am I on this thing? Don't want it. Okay, don't just assume that and then close the door and walk away. If you say, I don't want it, and look. Look. (laughs) Are you afraid that you'll lose that excuse? How can anybody deny what's around us? Talk about being pickled in something. We're all pickled in stillness. Just stop the stop the noise. Just stop the complaining. Just let what is naturally there emanate. Maybe so. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.